La Rui Productions presents The Great Unlearning, a courageous memoir about one woman's bold journey to mend her broken past. Read for you by me, the author, Mary La. In the last episode, I read Go Ask Your Mother, an excruciating story about a brutal experience that convinced me the world was unsafe and that I was unworthy of any relationship. If you haven't listened to it, I should warn you, it has some disturbing content that may be difficult for some listeners. In today's episode, I will read the next story in the book titled, It Was a Boy. Again, listener discretion is strongly advised here too as this story contains a very controversial event that will most likely trigger and upset some people. Here is It Was a Boy. Drops of opulescent liquid leaked out of my 17-year-old breasts through the knots of my crocheted halter top and onto the deck of my father's little sailboat. Praying no one would notice, I rubbed the drops of mystery fluid into the wood with my bare foot as I crossed my arms tightly over my chest. Shuffling up to the bow and sitting down with my back to everyone as we sailed around, jumping in the water, swimming back to the marina, and calling a girlfriend was all I wanted to do. This beautiful June day in 1977 was now ruined by the fear of what might be happening to me. Panicked by the thought of having a fatal disease because something in my body had liquefied and was coming out of my nipples, I went to the community health center the next day. I was over 20 weeks pregnant, but didn't know it. Sure, my breasts were getting fuller, my waist was thickening, and I had stopped having periods, but I didn't know that this wasn't normal. In fact, I felt lucky I wasn't menstruating. I never had any talks with my parents about birth control or the risk of pregnancy, so getting pregnant never even occurred to me. The stoic nurse at the health center who told me I had no choice but to have the baby rambled on about programs, then looked up from her clipboard with a pencil in hand and asked me about the father. Not sure how to say that the father could have been one of three or more boys, some of whom were rapists, I gulped before saying, I don't know. Within a week, my mother and father, who were in the throes of a messy divorce, found enough civility to drive me down to a clinic in Los Angeles that took care of such things. Although grappling with the fear of what was about to happen, Feeling a strange pleasure in seeing my mother and father together caused me to make a special effort to be on my best behavior. So my only expression was one of quiet compliance. I didn't want to cause any more trouble for them and believed that I was one of the problems that caused the breakup of their marriage. Our destination was in an industrial part of Los Angeles. Once in the nondescript concrete building, we were ushered to an old peeling formica table in a very bright room to sign a document. 
after being given a chewed-on big pen and asked to write, I am consenting to this procedure of my own free will. I felt my mother standing behind me, leaning into my upper body as if to ensure my completion of the task. Smelling like aquanet hairspray and something fermented, she was literally on my back, pushing my face to about 10 inches from the paper as I slowly wrote out the statement in perfect cursive penmanship. As soon as I had signed my name, she quickly grabbed the pen and signed the paper as well, handed the man a check for $500, then lit a Pall Mall non-filtered cigarette, which I really wanted a hit of. I was soon taken to a large cinder block room with 11 other teenage girls who were all there for the same grim reason. With our hospital beds barely a few inches apart, separated only by plastic curtains, each of us was given an enema by a tired-looking nurse and told to hold it until instructed. I barely made it to the bathroom when it was my turn. The girls who didn't make it were cursed by the tired ladies under their breath as they cleaned up after those who messed the floors. Following the enema, I was brought into a room where a nervous man in a white coat inserted a long needle into my belly in order to replace the amniotic fluid with salt water. After the procedure was over, he quietly said he was sorry and taped a piece of gauze where the needle had been. When I walked back to the cinder block room, it felt like a death march. After a few hours, I joined the other 11 girls who were already in labor. While some sobbed silently, most of them were screaming in emotional and physical pain because they did not understand what was happening. It sounded like a torture chamber, and although my first thought was to scream at everybody to shut up, I was determined to be a compliant patient and not cause any trouble or to upset my mother in any way. Thinking about all the other teenage girls who had labored in that bed before me, I whimpered in a fetal position throughout the night while enduring the relentless cramping in my belly. My baby was born dead at 9.30 a.m. the next morning, under the covers, unwitnessed, with no one to welcome it into the world. I apologetically called for the nurse who came to my bedside to scoop up the remains. As she whipped down the blanket, exposing a stinky mess, I felt embarrassed for having soiled the sheets. But upon hearing the thud of a little body landing in the cold metal basin that she held over my abdomen, a molten mix of shame, humiliation, and guilt seared a permanent hole in my heart. Just as the nurse was tossing the curtains aside to leave, she stopped, looked down in the basin, locked eyes with me, and with a flat affect said, It was a boy.
There was nowhere for my grief to go as my eyes darted around the little curtained-off world looking for a place to put it. Wondering how anyone could ever love me after what I'd done and what I'd let other people do to me, I needed my mother to come and stroke my hair to tell me I was brave and that everything would be okay. But it was my father's girlfriend who appeared at the bedside instead. As Iris the bitch grabbed the bloody sheet that was covering my legs, trying to pull it off to be sure the deed had been done, there was a brief tug of war, and she lost. Without a word, she reached into her faux leather handbag, pulled out a Virginia Slim cigarette, and without taking her eyes off me, put it in her mouth, lit it, then walked away. Within minutes, another nurse came in and put something in my IV that immediately made me lightheaded, a feeling I welcomed gladly. She then unlocked the wheels of my blood-soaked bed and wheeled me in slow motion down an echoey hall under what seemed to be hundreds of brightly flickering fluorescent lights. We arrived in a very cold room that contained two noose-like stirrups which appeared to be hanging from the ceiling. An empty soda can and a candy wrapper were on the floor at the feet of an expressionless man who wore blue coveralls and black rubber shoes. After receiving more medicine in my IV, or maybe in the plastic mask that was put over my nose and mouth, I drifted off to sleep as the nurse put my legs in the stirrups so they could vacuum out any remaining contents of my uterus before sending me home. Upon leaving the procedure room, I was instructed to bind my breasts to prevent them from filling with milk, although I was too groggy to ask what that meant. What I really needed was assurance that I would be okay. A gooey, feminine pad the size of a brick shifted between my legs when I got into the back seat of my father's car. As we left the clinic, with Tijuana Brass playing on the radio, I fell asleep hearing my parents talk about how the experience had been a nightmare for them. Although I had done something that made my mother happy, I had also done something I could not be forgiven for. We never spoke of it again. I avoided thinking about my guilt and shame by continuing to engage in a chaotic teenage lifestyle, attempting to self-medicate with more alcohol and drugs in order to eliminate my pain. My anger toward my mother for such a complete lack of guidance and support soon grew into blaming her for everything that went wrong with my life. If I had brought the child who I named Nathan Daniel into the world alive, he would be 45 at the time of this writing. It was only after years of inquiry that I learned my agreement to terminate the pregnancy had been motivated by my not wanting to make my mother mad, which would only push her further away from me. All I had wanted was for her to be proud of me, for something, for anything, but at any expense, and I hated myself for this. About 20 years later, 
with the experience haunting me enough to seek professional help, I was able to work through my emotional trauma with a therapeutic treatment called Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, also known as EMDR. As a therapist guided me through reliving the trauma to the fullest extent possible, I simultaneously focused on the sound and feeling of my hands tapping my thighs and then snapping my fingers by my ears while looking side to side. The outcome felt miraculous, and although I still have memory of the traumatic event, the EMDR treatment was able to break the painful emotional symptoms I associated with it. After unwinding the burden of my shame and guilt, which was then transformed into self-compassion, I was able to forgive myself. Since that time, I have also developed a greater understanding and compassion for the suffering other people endure due to choices they have made, a valuable skill I use regularly in my work as a hospice RN. In the last episode, number six, I talked quite a bit about shame, which is a topic that also carries over into this episode. But what I am moved to talk about in this moment is not more about shame, but the avoidance tactics both of my parents took about the emotional impact of this and other traumatic experiences I suffered through and from. We never talked about them, yet they possessed me for decades. I wondered where their silent approach came from, so I asked my mental health counselor daughter, Emily, about how people adopt their coping mechanisms. What she shared was spot on as usual. She said, Your parents expressed their emotions the way they were taught to express them, through the modeling of their own parents and family. Their parents most likely didn't have the emotional maturity to talk about painful events. Bingo. Emily then shared a great analogy. Think about little kids when they are like two years old. They get upset about something, express themselves with crying or maybe having a tantrum, then they're over it and they move on. They don't worry about looking like a fool, nor do they hold grudges. They just express their feelings as they show up. Then for some kids, I'd say most kids, it gets pounded into them that crying is unacceptable and that showing sad emotions is not okay. They need to buck up. They don't deserve to be sad, and it's modeled that denial of emotion is the answer. This is what I was taught. I stuffed my pain, then adequately numbed it with drugs and alcohol. I went through life appearing outwardly as though emotionally damaging events didn't faze me but for a minute. Emily said that because of this approach to handling uncomfortable situations, many people are hardwired to avoid pain at all costs. Although emotions are a part of being human, We don't want to address uncomfortable emotions, even though we know it's good to share. She said, We avoid discomfort 
for fear of not knowing how to handle it. I have a gut feeling my parents had an ignorance and fear of expressing emotion around the abortion because they didn't know how to approach it. Their parents probably didn't model emotional intelligence around challenging situations. Does that get them off the hook? No, it doesn't. But I have more of an understanding about their motivation for how they handled the painful disasters in my young life. They didn't have the skills to maneuver through my pain and probably their own. I sure have broken that cycle. My children know they can talk about anything with me. They feel safe in bringing me their most painful and embarrassing moments without judgment from me. If you would like to see the self-portrait I created to accompany the story I read today, you'll find it on my blog at mary-la.com. Or better yet, while you're on my website, buy a copy of The Great Unlearning. There are over 50 surreal self-portraits and stories in there. If you purchase a book via my website, I will send you an autographed copy while they last, or you can buy it on Amazon. M-A-R-Y-L-A dot com. Now it's time to address a listener's question, and it's a big one. Rhonda, a listener from Ohio, asks, Why did you think you deserved what happened to you in the stories, Girls Like Me and Go Ask Your Mother? Rhonda, your question ties in perfectly with my comments about the story I read today. I'm turning on my air quotes here. Something bad happened to me, turned into... Something bad happened to me because I am a bad person. Being raped and how my mother questioned my honesty wouldn't be because I was a good person. That makes no sense to a boundaryless young teenager with poor self-esteem. So as a result, I gravitated towards negative attributes about myself. That mindset, of course, has shifted but especially since working in hospice for about 15 years. Bad things like cancer happen to good people all the time, even young people. It doesn't mean they're bad people. What I've concluded in the story, Go Ask Your Mother, is that the young man's decision to rape me had nothing to do with me personally, except I was just a target in front of him. A violent person came across a situation that he saw as an opportunity. My mother's suspicious reaction to my plea for help after the rape was a reflection of her dysfunctional emotional intelligence, but I perceived it differently because of my lack of emotional intelligence at the time. I hope that answers your question, Rhonda, with a little extra If you have a question or comment about a story or my art, please email me at mary at mary-law.com. There is a good chance I'll mention your comment or address your question in a future podcast. My website and email address are also in the show notes. I have a free gift for you. By signing up for my engaging newsletter with inspiring new content, 
information on upcoming events and future projects, you will receive the audio version of my book of poetry, Fear Means Go, read by me. I also play classical guitar on this recording, as I did for today's podcast. In the next episode, I will read the next story in the book titled, The Calling which is about my search for independence by running away from California to Hawaii at 19 to escape my chaotic teenage life and leave my reputation behind. But was living proof that wherever you go, there you are. Discos and the beach were my new playgrounds, but proved to be a bad influence on me. I found a great job, but quit it to move in with a cocaine dealer, strapped a gun to my ankle that I didn't know how to use, got arrested, and impulsively married a man that wasn't suited for me. Was I a confident risk-taker or just ignorant of what could go wrong? I'll let you decide. This is Mary Law. Thanks for listening.